Welcome back to Conversations with Edsa. This is the last episode of our Career Surplus series. We hope you guys have enjoyed listening as we explored the pathways students interested in economics can take. Last episode, we had a look at the private sector through the eyes of Emma Gray from Deloitte Access Economics. Today, we will once more be looking at the private sector, but from a different professional's perspective. Before we start, I'll quickly introduce myself. I'm Tori, I'm currently studying commerce, and I'm a member of ESSA. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Chitra. How are you, Chitra? Yeah, Tori, I'm good, thank you. My name's Chitra, and I study law and commerce here at Monash as well. I'm very excited for today's podcast and to gain more insight into all things economics, specifically in the workplace. This week, we will be joined by our guest speaker, Warwick Davis, who is an experienced industry economist from Frontier. Frontier is an economics consultancy providing advice to both public and private sector clients. Now, Warwick has 20 years experience as an economist and advises firms on competition and regulatory issues. In particular, he is an expert in the areas of pricing, economic modelling, costing and market analysis. He's worked on a variety of projects ranging from stock exchanges and telecommunications all the way to airports and rail. He has a master's majoring in economics and a number of articles already published. Warwick, we are absolutely delighted to speak to you today and have you join our podcast. How are you going today? Hi, I'm um, very well. Thanks for um, thanks for having me and nice to be able to talk about economics with people that are interested. We're certainly interested. Um, so let's jump right in. Can you give us a little background on where you went to uni and what kind of student were you? Well, like for example, were you a procrastinator? Like <laughs> <I am? laughs> um, well, so I started uh, I started back in 1993. In fact, uh, I first went to Monash um, in Clayton uh, in back in back in the early 90s so I still have a lot of fond memories although um, that was at the Monash Clayton campus so are you do you both study mostly at Caulfield now is that where the economics back mm-hmm. oh, so you still Clayton I, yeah, so anyway, I, I, I had uh, had four years at Clayton I did an honours degree uh, in economics there um, and then later on, I think starting in about 99 I, I started to do a master's degree and I did that at the university. Uh, University of Melbourne so I don't know as a student I was um, uh, yeah I mean I don't know it's describe myself as being terrifically motivated I mean I think like a lot of people the first few years are a lot of fun and then you know gradually you sort of work out that um, well this is all pretty serious I need to get a job or something out of (laughs) of all this at the end and and then I sort of really focused down to the uh, to the sort of honours year which was um, yeah I, I mean and ultimately I mean I really enjoyed I really enjoyed getting into economics uh, as it as it went on. Sort of, I think it got more and more interesting as you got into the more detailed subjects. How did you get into economics in the first place? Like, what prompted you to study it? Uh, well, it's sort of interesting. I mean, probably like a lot of people, it was sort of family family directed in in some respects. So actually, my my father, uh, he was amongst the first economics students at Monash uh, ever. So he he went there. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know exactly. It was the early '60s, so straight after Monash opened. Um, so he he did he did an economics degree, and the funny thing is that um, we had the same lecturer. So there was a, oh a, a famous uh, famous professor there, Ian Ward, um, who who obviously worked, <laughs> must have worked there for at least thirty years, who, who taught comparative economic systems, which was a great a great subject. I, I still remember doing it in in second year. Um, you know, it was a real um, 
it was a real I'm not not sure if there's a similar subject offered now but it was you know I mean I guess that in those times um, there was a real sort of you know so there were sort of issues about you know capitalism versus socialism versus you know communism and other models of of economics. I mean, I'm, I'm not so sure that that's uh, quite as pertinent as it, as it was even then. But um, that was a really fascinating uh, subject. Yeah, that's really interesting, and it's so um, nice to hear like the different generations of your family involved in economics. <laughs> um, I want to now move on to your career, so. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Frontier and what exactly does being an economist entail? Okay, um, well, I think at a sort of high level, um, you know, economists do lots of different things. Um, I mean, at, at, I guess at Frontier, we, we like to say that our, our job is primarily to help clients with difficult economic problems. Uh, I mean, probably the sort of work I do um, they're usually sort of one of three types of problem. It's either in the sort of regulatory sphere uh, to do with a sort of competition issue or it might be a public policy issue. So, I mean, I can just give you some examples of, of what sorts of issues that we deal with and what we might do. So on the sort of regulatory side, um, so a lot of times there's, you know, firms subject to regulation if they've got a lot, a lot of market power and they might come to us and, you know, seek advice on what prices they might be able to charge. Or alternatively, we might work for a regulator that's seeking some sort of further advice on, you know, um, what efficient prices might be or whether that firm's incurring costs efficiently, uh, you know, and, and perhaps which costs the, the regulator should be should be looking at. So that's sort of one type of issue. Uh, competition issues. So, you know, firms with market power might try and merge with another firm. Um, so that's... Um, anti-competitive and, and against uh, against the um, Competition and Consumer Act, which is the prevailing law here in Australia. So they those firms might seek advice from us about how they might demonstrate to the regulator that this particular merger wouldn't be anti-competitive. So we might look at you know the, some data about pricing or something about how the firms have behaved in the past. You know what their market shares might be, those sorts of things. Or yeah, we might we might use a sort of might use some econometrics to develop a you know model of, of, of how pricing um, has happened in the past. You know estimated elasticities or that kind of thing. And then the third thing is sort of public policy issues. So that's kind of often very broad. You know it can be an absolute range of things. So just just one current issue that I'm looking at at the moment. Um, so uh, so this, this project is actually sort of for the Commonwealth Government and it's about how to try and get markets working better uh, for biodiversity conservation. So government's very keen to use market instruments to try and encourage greater conservation, um, but that, that sort of raises very difficult issues of market design. So if you want to get uh, you want to get more suppliers of conservation, so that might be. I mean, obviously, government can sort of buy it directly, but then it's also trying to get perhaps farmers to maybe convert parts of their land to preserve biodiversity in in certain areas. And so, there's a lot of interest in you know how can we design a market that will actually allow you know trading between people that want to buy biodiversity and people that might be able to sell it. So, yeah, there's lot lots of different sort of you know public policy issues like that where you you can apply. You know lessons from economics. Uh, in, the, in that case, the economics of market design to try and uh, you know help government solve this policy problem. So, I mean, it's kind of in, in broad terms, you can sort of tell it's a sort of mix of analytical things, uh, often involving some kind of analysis of data, um, 
and look, I, I'd probably just to add as well that, um, and you, you would see this in most jobs. So although I, you know, being in consulting, you, you're predominantly working as an as an economist. Um, you also got to do a few other things like you've got to manage projects, uh, you have to manage teams, and you also have to do a bit of marketing sometimes to to drum up new work um, once your current project is finished. So there's there's a bit of that sort of <laughs> a bit of that stuff as well. Wow, that's so fascinating. It it really reminds me how economics is everywhere, and like you mentioned, conservation. It's not it's not always those big financial based decisions exactly that we think of um, when we think of economics. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. But out of regulatory issues, competition, and public policy, which one do you find most enjoyable to work with? Well, I think I think the competition matters tend to sort of be the most exciting because often they you know they're high profile and they're working under tight deadlines and you know it's it's all sort of very <laughs> very busy and um and, and often those things too they're they're um uh they're often sort of short projects in different industries you don't know a lot about so you're really having to you know sort of scramble to catch up with what's the industry about um you know what are the issues likely to be here and then how can we apply you know the <laughs> a lot of the economics under short time frame so they the, i gotta say they do tend to be the most exciting regulatory issues tend to be much more long term because regulation is sort of rarely a surprise you sort of know it's coming and <laughs> you prepare for it and there's potentially you know lots and lots of work over a period often of sort of years to try and uh, you know, work out something. So they're, they're probably the, the most exciting. The public policy stuff can be interesting, uh, can be interesting as well. It just depends a little bit on on what the issue is and, and whether the client is, you know, wants to hear the advice that uh, that you want to give. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds cool. Um, so you work in the private sector. Um, what do you think the benefits are of working in private rather than public or education research or something else yeah look it's interesting i mean i guess i can only reflect on my experience so I, i've worked mm-hmm. uh i worked six years um in government so i did uh, i've done uh yeah i think six years I, i've certainly done uh, some years at the ACCC. so that's the sort of you know the main competition regulator in australia and i worked a few years in the uk for the uk uh, telecoms regulator uh, and then apart from that, I've had sort of two stints in consulting. So probably they're, they're the two I can compare most most easily. Uh, I mean, I think the, the, there's some real benefits of being in the private sector and I think in consulting. I mean, the, the benefits by and large are that, you know, it's quite a flexible environment and there's not a lot of, you know, bureaucracy or, you know, you, you sort of tend to just sort of go where the, where the work is and, you know, you work sort of fairly quickly and nimbly in, in consulting. In, in government, it's much more, uh, you know, it's long-term sort of thinking. Things move a bit more slowly and often, you know, particularly when you're starting out your career, you're just sort of one, one small piece in a very big chain of decision-makers. So um, that, that's sort of good and particularly early on, I think, in your career when you're really trying to learn a lot. I mean, I think government is, is sort of fantastic at... Uh, you know, certain a lot of the a lot of the good government departments and and good government agencies that do a lot of economics, you know, have some really good structured sort of you know progressions and 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 you know, so you can really learn a lot in those, particularly in those early years about you know how to do, <laughs> how to do economics in the real world. Um, so that's sort of that's really important. Um, so yeah, I, I think in terms of, you know, at, you know, going into sort of academics and 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 more research things, yeah, I, I probably don't have a lot of. Uh, a lot of experience um, with that, but I guess it's really, you know, in part, it's a bit of your your own interest. I think, you know, you can, 
I mean, consulting in that sense is sort of you tend to, you tend to get fairly broad. Um, you know, you tend to work on lots of different industries and, and, and often using lots of different skills. Whereas if you're really interested in doing more, you know, one thing really deeply, that tends to push you, I think, more into academia or, or research or things like that. And even and even some government um, some government roles are a little bit like that as well. So it depends a little bit what, what you like to do. I think that's really, like how you said earlier, um, doing economics in the real world. I think that's really relevant, especially to university students like us, like, because we don't quite get what it's like outside of a university degree in a class. So to put that into practice, would you be able to describe maybe one of your more memorable projects you've worked on in your career for us? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of, um, a couple of quite memorable ones. Um, uh, so I, th- I think probably the most memorable was that I, I did some work for the government or the federal government during the early stages of the, the development of the, the NBN, the National Broadband Network. So um, a bit of sort of history, but back in the late 2000s, so I'd, I'd worked quite a lot in, you know, in telecoms through the, the mid-2000s for the ACCC and then in, and then in consulting. Um, but back in the late 2000s, we'd really hit a bit of an impasse with trying to build a, a next generation network that would deliver you know, more fibre and, and higher speeds. Um, so you know, the government had been trying to negotiate um, negotiate a network upgrade with Telstra. They hadn't been able to reach agreement. And eventually the government sort of said, well, you know, we need to bring Telstra to the table and the best way we think we can do that is to run a tender. So sort of say, right, is there anyone else that, that thinks that they can actually build this thing and, and we'll tip in several billion dollars to sort of make that, make that worthwhile competing for? So we, we, got, we got a role with the, with the government to assess all the bids um, that were put in uh, for the NBN. And it was so that was sort of a really fascinating, you know, time. Went for went for sort of quite a long time to sort of prepare for the bidding process and then to evaluate the bids. Uh, and and I guess ultimately what happened was that you know we found that none of the bids were really able to do the job, <laughs> and and Telstra Telstra refused to bid. So we ended up in a, in a the government ended up in a very difficult situation, and that's how they or how we you know we in Australia ended up with a whole new state entity, the MBN Co, to build and to build and operate that, that, that network. So the, that was a really, you know, sort of fascinating, fascinating time. Um, uh, so probably I've got a couple of other ones that are more recently that, that have been really good. So I, I did quite a lot of work on the Vodafone TPG merger last year. So that was a big one between, uh, you know, the sort of um, uh, uh, Vodafone that's been in the market for a long time and TPG. That, and th- this was sort of the, the difficulty of the case was that TPG had essentially announced that it wanted to build a network and be the fourth entrant into the market and it had started to build it. Uh, and then, it, and then uh, it, it decided to try and merge with Vodafone. And so the ACCC objected to this and said, well, you know, uh, it would be better if we had four competing networks rather than three. And so I think, you know, at face value, that makes a bit of sense. But um, anyway, it turned out that there was quite a lot of difficulties that were being faced by TPG in, in that rollout. And so we, we worked for um, both TPG and Vodafone in, um, in challenging that um, decision of the ACCC. And ultimately uh, successfully, so um, that was quite an interesting one that went went to the federal court. And then probably the other area that I've done a lot of work in that I've really enjoyed is in taxi reform. Uh, so in Victoria, um, uh, you know, taxis have historically, and this is you know sort of universal, really. Taxis have historically been um, very heavily regulated and very badly regulated, and uh, technology 
you know, in the form of sort of, you know, Uber type apps, um, it really allowed uh, a lot of change and a lot of disruption in that market. So I was sort of heavily involved in some of the early reforms to taxi markets, sort of in, you know, going back to 2012, 2013, uh, and then ultimately ended up in, you know, 2017 with pretty much um, not quite complete deregulation of the market, but, you know, certainly, uh, you know, freedom of entry and much um, less regulation of fares. Um, so I think that's like a really good example of how, you know, I think economic reforms can really, um, you know, benefit uh, end users, uh, even though you have to deal with some some pretty tough issues there of, um, of transition, you know, in the form of what do you do about taxi license holders. Wow, that's so interesting. Like, because I hadn't, like, I remember Uber coming into the market and, um, like, disrupting it, but I never thought of it from the economic Minute, like how that changed the economic rules. Um, I think it's really cool to see how that is actually something you'd be involved in. Mm, mm. Yeah, and there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of sort of work around, you know, I mean, his, historically, it, it's just, you know, you, you needed a license to enter, um, you know, against the advice of most economists. But um, even when you decide to change it, it's not sort of, it's not sort of straightforward about, you know, how you kind of essentially, you know, design the market so that you think you get, you get, you know, you get the best outcomes um, out of it. So, um, yeah, fortunately, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it really ended up being that it was technology that was the really big trigger to, to allow for, you know, more deregulation as people could sort of immediately see the benefits of, um, you know, allowing alternatives into the market. Mm. I think they're super cool projects. And, um, again, it just reminds me of how Echo is really everywhere. Um, you know, NBN is all around us and it's so cool to hear that, um, you played a role in kind of um, getting it from an idea to where it is now. And again, with Uber, like um, we're, at uni, we're learning about the rise in like the gig economy. And it's interesting to hear how economists have to, um, you know, deal with those issues. So now I want to just um, last question about Frontier. You've worked there for over a decade I just want to know what your experience was like climbing up the ranks and how culture, how the culture at Frontier has played a role in that. Yeah, so look, Frontier is sort of an interesting place. So um, I, I think one of the reasons that, that attracted me to it was that it's, uh, it's, it's pretty relaxed and it's, it's not very hierarchical. So we have about 30 to 35 consultants that sort of vary a little bit over the years. So we're not, we're not particularly large. We're sort of big enough that... We work across quite a few sectors, but we we don't have a sort of you know deep deep sort of hierarchy um, of you know, uh, and in fact in fact basically the firm doesn't really use titles, <laughs> so it's it's much more sort of egalitarian in that sense. I mean you can you can you can tend to get away with these things in in smaller firms. Um, it's much more relaxed. Um, so my 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 sort of progression at Frontier really over the last uh, well, 13, 13 or fourteen years is has sort of gone from one where I was essentially, you know, supporting other people on their projects um, to now obviously the situation is, well, you know, I, you know, generate a lot of my own work or, or um, yeah, you know, I can sort of manage manage projects and manage teams and I'll, I'll sort of point other people to help me do the work. I still end up, you know, helping others as well. Again, that's, that's sort of part of being in a, in a smaller firm. Um, but it's sort of, you know, I mean, gradually over time you, you sort of develop the skills that you really need to... Um, you know, to, to manage and and, uh, and take the lead on things. That that's really been the the primary thing. Um, I mean, the, the the sort of culture of 
consulting generally is that it's in, you may have heard this before, but it's it sometimes it's a little bit feast or famine. Uh, so sometimes you know you, you, you and and I guess I, as you get more experience, you learn to expect that a little bit. So you you might have four or five projects on the go, and then you get two new ones, and you know there's a bit of a bit of a mad panic to reorganise uh, <laughs> and bring people in, uh, and and you know then at other times you might have three projects that all finish in the same week, and then you, you turn around and go, well wow, what am I going to do? What am I going to do next week? But you know things, you, the more experience you get, you realise that sort of things pop up and. As long as you're open to sort of you know <laughs> doing new things, um, yeah, some, something will uh, will always emerge. So, yeah, it's 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 a it's a really interesting environment. I mean, it's not I don't it's sort of not for everyone. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I said I, this is sort of my second stint in it, so I didn't get scared away by the first uh, by the first stint. But um, yeah, it, it can be it can be great fun. You know, if you if you're in a good team working with really good people, and and, and by and large, yeah, the the people that I work with at, at Frontier are fantastic. I mean, we've got you know, um, uh, the, the, the person I work for, um, uh, mostly um, Dr. Philip Williams is sort of like an Australian expert on competition law and, and we've got, um, you know, an ex-professor of econometrics, you know, from the University of Sydney who, who works, uh, works here and a couple of other PhD uh, level economists as well, so that's you know we've got a lot of sort of technical skill, which is sort of in a sense well well beyond my own skills, but I can draw that those in to help <laughs> help clients that I have. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the real benefit um, the real benefit of um, a firm like Frontier. So you're just making use of their resources, allocation <laughs> yeah. resources. Yeah, that, that's it. Yeah, so specialisation. <laughs> that's one of the one of the key things you've got to learn. Um. That sounds like a really cool place to work. It seems like it's got a really good vibe. Um, and so for students who are like looking for where they want to go after uni, would you have any advice for them, especially those who um, are looking for a career in economics? Yeah, sure. I've got a, I mean, there's certainly a few things uh, I'd recommend and, and I'll sort of, you know, you can break that into you know, study things and then other things. <laughs> I think on the study things, I, I've sort of got, I've sort of got some fairly strong views about this. Uh, you know, if you if you want to be an economist, then you know you can take <laughs> take my advice if you like. I mean, I think that there's really three things I, I would I would think. Um, you know, one is on study, do as much maths and as much quantitative economics, like econometrics, as you as you think you can handle. And the reason why is just because these are very saleable skills. You know, when you when you get out to, you know, it, it's it's something that's not not that easy. It's not necessarily for everyone, but they're really good skills. But sort of it rolls into my second point, which is that don't really ever lose sight of the underlying economics. So you would be amazed how much um, a little bit of Econ One Hundred and One uh, goes in, you know, in the real world. Um, uh, and you know, people will say that economics isn't isn't very practical, but you you will be surprised when you get out get out into the real world just how how few people actually understand the very basic concepts concepts of economics like scarcity and opportunity costs and incentives like these things are you know these things are fundamental things you learn actually very early on in economics and um, yeah you find mastery of some of those basic concepts just just puts you head and shoulders above above a lot of other people you'd you'd be surprised um, I think the other thing on study is just yeah try and enjoy uh, or you know, try and think about what you enjoy doing. Um, but look, it can take a long time to work out what you enjoy doing. So, you know, try, <laughs> try everything and see how you go. Um, and, and you know, if it takes a long time to work that out, don't don't be too worried. It takes you know, it takes people years and years and years to decide really what they like doing. 
Um, I, I just on other things, you know, in terms of in terms of careers, uh, I mean, I think one thing that I perhaps think, you know, I, I sort of regret maybe, you know, not doing a bit more of when I was at university was was looking at internships. So companies like Frontier and there are there are heaps of others. I think you've, you've talked to Deloitte. I think they they would offer them in sort of summer and winter as well. I mean, these are a really great way to make connections, um, and there's no doubt you can impress an employer. You know, in 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 the four to six weeks that you work there, we've I know at Frontier we've employed a number of people coming out of internships because it's pretty easy to identify, you know, people that are really you know switched on and, and we think could make a good contribution. So yeah, I mean, you know, um, certainly worth looking into sending a few letters or making a bit of contact with a few companies to see see how you go. Um, and look, the other other thing too is that you know you, you'll probably have many jobs in your life, so. Um, you know, there's lots of different things you can try, and so really try and stay broad in your interests. Um, I don't think you know people don't tend to stay in jobs for you know ten or twenty years. Notwithstanding, I have I've been at Frontier a long time. There, you know, a lot of people do move around a lot more than that. So, you know, you can sort of be prepared for that as well, and, and not not be afraid to to move on and try different things. Um, and do you have any advice for students who are about to go into the job market now? We like I think we all agree that it's probably one of the toughest job climates there's been in quite a while. Yeah, look, it's um, it, it is definitely going to be difficult. I mean, I think the um, uh, you know COVID this sort of era has has been something that's amazing for all of us. So I've I've got some you know I've got a couple of kids and I tell them all the time that. There's no one alive that's ever really seen <laughs> seen an economy like uh, like we've had on a, on a worldwide scale. Mm. I mean, it's really been a hundred years since we've had a pandemic like this, and, and no one really knows uh, you know how things will happen. There's nothing really in the textbooks that tell us how to deal with this uh, economically. Um, I mean, obviously the governments had to take measures, you know, both to try and keep the economy afloat while also you know addressing the virus. Um, so. You know, I mean, I think you know, in some senses, uh, you know, there, there may well be, you know, more, you know, let's say, more opportunities in government if the government's looking to employ more people. Mm-hmm. I think the private sector is is understandably going to be fairly cautious um, about how things will, uh, how things will, you know, how things will go in the next twelve months. I mean, I, I think in general, I'm a bit mixed on the the economic impact of um, of COVID, say, you know, I mean, I think obviously the, the impact has been huge in the last six months. I mean, how will it, how will it go from now? Um, I mean, I think, you know, the government's accumulating a lot of debt and it will continue to do that for for a little while and that's ultimately got to be repaid. But on, on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of slack in the economy too. It's not like, um, it's not like the, you know, the productive capacity of the economy has been destroyed in any way so you know it's not like an earthquake or a, or a war where you've got to replace a whole lot of capital I mean essentially uh, you know people are sort of ready <laughs> ready and sitting there to take up take up work again so in, in in that in that context you'd think the rebound you know if it happens uh, could happen pretty quickly so so maybe it will be the case that you know if the government um, is able to pick up some of that demand slack um, and, and look you know there's no doubt that a lot of jobs for economists are in government I mean I don't know what the exact number would be but I would, would think it'd be more than half of people working you know working as economists would be in government what do you think about the fact that um, Australia's population is now long, no longer on track to where it was going to be because we don't have um, immigration coming in like how do you think that would affect the workforce and the rebound yeah well I think you know Australia's been quite dependent on 
on immigration for for growth, uh, you know, over some years. But it's a little a little hard to a little hard to know exactly how that how that's gonna how that's gonna shake things out. I mean, in terms of you know what what jobs were <laughs> were those people going to and that that sort of thing. It's you know, I mean, I guess there's sort of like there's a micro there's a macro impact to it, but there's also sort of a micro. Uh, impact impact to it as well. So um, yeah, it's a pretty that's a pretty tricky uh, pretty tricky one to figure out. I think. Yeah, sorry, I kind of just threw that in there because I was reading something about it. Um, back mm. to kind of on topic for students, what kind of skills do you think are most important to having a job like yours or any in the economist field? I feel like you've probably touched on it a little bit, but are there any like specific skills? Yeah, so look, I, I mean, I think there's a couple of there's a couple of things that you know certainly in consulting are really like absolutely critical. I mean, I think they're sort of critical in most jobs, but um, particularly in, in consulting, I mean, you have to have a solid grounding in economics. You need to know the foundational things really well. As I said before, um, you know, a little bit of Econ 101 actually goes a lot further than you think it would. Um, you know, uh, you don't don't necessarily need to know all of the latest and greatest thinking to, to really make um, or to have a big effect. Um, probably the other thing, um, you know, the other thing that's that's really critical is communication skills. So you have to be able to connect with people and convince people um, that what you've done is useful and what you're saying is is sort of right. And that's that's both in written form as well as uh, as well as face to face interaction. So. You know, the, the best technical skills in the world are not really going to help you unless you can communicate those skills to the people that you're dealing with. Um, and, you know, again, my, my advice on this as well is you really need to work work hard on your writing. I mean, it's something that, you know, even though I've been, I've been working, you know, for more than 20 years, but you literally have to work on your writing all the time. <laughs> you, you know, you do a lot of writing, um, but it's something that you can never become too good at. And, and, you know, I think the more experience you get, the more you realise that, you know, People, people don't like reading, you know, poorly written things. And so, again, it doesn't matter if you've got the best ideas and you've done the best analysis in the world. If you can't write it, you can't write it simply, you can't write it succinctly and clearly to people, um, it's not really going to matter very much. Um, that being said, you know, quantitative skills, as I said as well, they're, they're really important and they're, and they're in really high demand in the sort of economics field. And, and I think, you know, like one thing that, that students nowadays have got a real advantage in over people like, like myself and people even older than me is that you're much more on top of, um, you know, handling data. Um, you know, the programs that are around now are just so much better than the ones I grew up with. Computing power is so much better. Um, so, you know, they're, they're the really saleable things to, you know, again, to, to firms like Frontier and, and in government because it's just you, you've sort of grown up with a lot of that, you know, um, you know coding type stuff a lot more than... Than, than older people have. So that's the real sort of source of advantage <laughs> as well. Mm, that was some really helpful advice. I'm sure that our audience will really appreciate it. I know I definitely learned a lot. Um, I want to now move on to the current climate. So we're in the middle of a pandemic, just like we talked about, and it's impacted almost every industry and aspect of living in ways that you know we wouldn't even have thought possible. I'd like to talk to you about COVID and your job. So how do you think the um, COVID-19 pandemic will change the future of consulting? Yeah, look, I don't know that it will have a huge impact. I mean, I think, um, I mean, there's obviously going to be a very, you know, there's sort of a, there's a, a short-term impact, um, uh, but the sort of longer-term, longer-term stuff is much less certain. I mean, I think, uh, you know, what, <laughs> 
one sort of immediate immediate thing that that it has affected is you know is how of how we all work, uh, and that's that's exactly the same in consulting as it's been in most industries and as we're doing here, uh, it's a lot more a lot more Zoom based and a lot more um, you know um, yeah c- communication based. Uh, remotely rather than face to face. So in that sense, uh, you know, I mean, I haven't been into the office since March. Uh, it's a long time. <laughs> it's a long time away. I mean, in, in some respects, in consulting, you know, you don't miss it actually all that much because a lot of our our work. I mean, we we we've got clients that are all over Australia. You know, in Asia Pacific. Uh, so in that sense, is it really, you know, is it really sort of hugely different? Um, well, not, <laughs> not really, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and as long as, you know, I mean, now, now that in a sense we've hit a situation where the, I, the IT is by and large good enough to, to, support, to support these kind of things, the actual, I think the impact is much less than it would have been, you know, say 10 and, and certainly a lot less than it would have been 20 or 30 years ago when we didn't have all these, all these great communication tools. So... Um, yeah, look, I, I don't, I don't know that we'll, that it will have such a huge impact. As I said, I think you know, in terms of what happens in the next twelve months, um, I mean, I think we're all a little bit, you know, fingers crossed that uh, you know the economy, um, you know, rebounds fairly quickly. Um, you know, I mean, there's, uh, I mean, consulting work is is sort of always is always there. I mean, I think, I mean, I mean this, this may be things that you know, but um, you know, I mean, consultants tend to be used for a couple of different reasons. I mean, one is you know, clients want skills I don't have. Um, a second reason is, um, you know, clients are short of staff and so they need people to sort of fill gaps. Um, and, you know, there might be some other sort of reasons, but they're really the sort of two key two key things. So, you know, um, there's nearly always opportunities for, you know, for consultants, um, even when things aren't going, uh, the economy sort of not going quite as well, so. That's certainly good to hear. I like the idea that <laughs> even... In the midst of this, we might be okay. Um, yeah. So, just to wrap things up, do you have any book recommendations you have for us, um, particularly in the economic field? Yeah, I've, oh, I've actually, uh, I've actually got three. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you, you didn't know this, but I, I do like to read um, economics books. I mean, there's 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 lots of great ones around. I mean, there's three that I'd, I'd sort of recommend as being sort of in the slightly more popular economics. Um, field. I hope you haven't heard of you haven't heard of some of these, um, but let me know if you have and if you've read them. Um, so, because my my work and um, you know largely falls into the microeconomics field. I, I mean, I I did you know macro at university, but you know by and large my career is entirely micro and and a lot of industry regulation um, type work. That my books are sort of slightly slanted towards that. Um, but so the, the first two of these are about markets and market design, and the third one is about um, the, the sort of use and meaning um, of economic theory. So the, the first book is a book by a New Zealander um, called John McMillan, um, and he, he worked a lot in the US. Uh, unfortunately, he, he passed away about 10 years ago. I don't think he was that old, but he was a fantastic economist. Uh, and he did a lot of work on... Um, on markets and particularly in spectrum auctions, um, so we're sort of involved in some of the early work that the Federal Communications Commission did in, you know, in the nineties in, uh, in designing spectrum auctions. But anyway, he wrote this fantastic book, and it's called Reinventing the Bazaar: A Natural History of Markets. And I, I'm happy to send you a send you a link to it. Um, so what what the book is about is it, it is it, it's really like a sort of in a sense a popular history about markets and what makes them work. Um, and in fact, I actually use this book. 
um, all the time in my work. Like I, <laughs> I cite it quite frequently because he has a really he, he has two two things. He has a really great framework about explaining you know why it is that markets work well and why they don't work well. And you know this again a lot of a lot of our work is is about that. But then he has lots of great examples and stories about you know different kinds of markets and and obviously. You know, he's you know um, reinventing the bazaar. So he tells the story of um, you know bazaars in Morocco and and how they only work for local people and, and tourists get ripped off, and that's due to search costs. So he gives all these great great examples. So I highly recommend that one. I, I have to, I have it in I have it in hard copy and on my Kindle. That's something <laughs> I like it. Um, another book that I've read fairly recently, but is also um, good in a similar way. So it's by um, uh, it's by Alvin Roth. So he's a he won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, actually, for, for his work in market design. So um, his, his work actually is sort of focused a lot on design of markets that don't involve prices. So it's it's sort of matching markets. And, and so he advised, advised a lot on things like kidney exchanges uh, and, and ha- how you can arrange a market in kidney exchanges where, you know, people find it repugnant to pay for kidneys but you can arrange swaps of them between compatible donors. It turns out to be quite a tricky problem. So he did lots of work on creating these exchanges in the US and he's done a lot of work on like school uh, school choice and um, doctor choice and, and all these things. So he's worked on a whole lot of these markets about how you get how you get um, you know these kinds of markets to work efficiently where historically they work really poorly. So that's another another good one. And the third one is, um, is one by um, a guy called Ariel Rubenstein, uh, and the book is called Economic Fables. Um, so you might have, I'm not sure, um, probably he, this guy would be the best known of, um, of the sort of, uh, of the economists uh, in, in, let's say, you know, undergraduate study. So he's, this, he's done a lot of work in bargaining theory. So um, he's quite well known in, in game theory. He's quite well known in that field. And actually you can get, you can get this book. In fact, like all of his work, um, if you look him up, he's, all of his work's free. On Google, so you can download the books for nothing. So that's really good. Um, anyway, the, the book itself is is um, yes, yeah, so called Economic Fables, and it's it's part history of his life. So he's uh, an Israeli um, who, who's sort of grown up quite a bit in the U.S. and, and most of his work is in I think he's been at Princeton um, in the U.S. Uh, so it's part of sort of history of his life and in part sort of musings on you know the use of theoretical economics in the real world. So because he's a really great economic theorist. You'd think that he'd be more of an advocate for how you how you can use his work, but in fact, he says completely the opposite. He says a lot of my work is completely <laughs> completely useless. Um, but he has a really sort of you know a fascinating and, and entertaining way of um, of sort of explaining that. And so I, again, even though I was, you know, in in my, in my sort of job, I like to think you know that a lot of that theor- theoretical work is really useful in the real world. And yeah, I sort of found I found it quite challenging to read that book. And, and again, even though I thought he was a bit perhaps down on. On some of that, it was a really, um, it was a really fascinating, uh, a really sort of fascinating read. So yeah, I can highly recommend any of those three. And, and as I said, I'm happy to send you, send you some links if you if any of your listeners are interested. Wow, thank you so much. They um, sound really interesting. We've got um, a few reads over the summer, so thank you for that. Um, we'll definitely have to give them a read. Um, so to conclude, you brought up some very interesting points today, as well as, um, you know, sharing a lot of helpful advice. I'm sure the audience learned a lot today about economics in the private sector. I know I definitely did. Um, and Tori as well is nodding, so <laughs> that's good. Um, we're now reaching the end of today's podcast. If anyone is interested in reading some of Warwick's work, you can check out some of his articles on the Frontier website. 
But honestly, Warwick, thank you so much for your time today. Um, and on behalf of the ESSA committee, we are truly grateful for you coming in today and sharing your advice. It's a pleasure to, to, um, to have been on. This brings us to the end of our Career Surfless series. If you want to hear more Conversation with ESSA episodes, subscribe or follow us on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. You can also keep up to date with the events going on at ESSA, such as our upcoming revised sessions, by liking our Facebook page or visiting our website. Thanks for listening and we can't wait to bring you more content in 2021.